So tonight we close our mini-series on the Reformation. Uh, we've entitled it Sola because the Reformation had five battle cries in the Reformation. And we've looked at two of them. And we focused on three, but we've touched on uh, the other ones a little bit as well. The first week we talked about Sola Fide, faith alone. And last week we talked about Sola Scriptura, which is scripture alone. And tonight we're going to be discussing the central Sola, the most important Sola, the Sola that every other one points back to, and that is Solus Christus, Christ alone. So we've, we've talked about, we've discussed the power of the Reformation and the effects that it had, not only in the church, but what it did to Western culture. And we looked at Martin Luther, one of the key figures, if not the key figure of the Reformation. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the very heart of it, the very heart of what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and so many others that took even death in the face, they stared at it and they said, I am going to stand for this. I'm going to put my life on, my on the line, my family on the line, and so many others as well for the heart of the Reformation, which is this, Christ alone. Because every other sola points back to it. If you think about sola fide, right, faith alone, but it's faith in who? Christ. Sola scriptura, right, scripture alone. That scripture is the highest authority of truth. It is the only source of truth that is incapable of failing. And scripture is about who? And this is, when I do this, this is like respond. Scripture is about who? Christ, right? Sola gratia, grace alone. The grace of God has come to us and has enlightened us, enabled us to really come to see and trust and faith in who? And then soli deo gloria, to God be the glory. And where do we see God's glory most magnificently? In the person of Christ. And we worship God and give him glory. Why? Because of Christ. See, Christ alone is the heart of the Reformation, but it's also the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the Gospels. And so we're going to be unpacking that tonight and looking at that. And as was the case 500 years ago, and, and as is the case now, it's really easy for us to pervert this. It's really easy for us to not really fully grasp, to believe, or to live out Christ alone for salvation. This is good news. This is great news. But it's really hard for us sometimes not to want to add something in, right? We want to add a little bit of our goodness. We want to add our religious actions. We want to add our fervor or our zeal or whatever it may be. We want to bring it into the equation. And it's so hard not to because we are a performance-driven species, right? We say, you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch yours. You give something, you expect to receive something in return. We are performance-driven. Everything in our world speaks this. Like, your job is performance-driven, right? You perform, and then you get, hopefully, a promotion. Or maybe a Christmas bonus, which many of you are really excited about and hoping for. And if you don't perform, what happens? They don't say, it's not a big deal. They say, you're going to have to pack your bags. This is not going to work out for you. We are always, every single day as we show up to our jobs, as we show up to school, as we show up to whatever avenue that we're in, we, we know we need to perform. Even our friendships are performance-based, right? If you think about your friends, your closest friends, sure, they make mistakes, they're, sometimes they're mean, sometimes they th say things behind your back that they shouldn't, but they're your friends, why? They're your friends because you love and care for them 
and then they reciprocate that. Right? You show love to them, you give to them, you support them, you encourage them, you spend time with them, and they love you, care for you, spend time with you, support you, and encourage you. Nobody has a friend that doesn't reciprocate love and care, that doesn't perform on some level. Even friendship, you have to perform for each other. I mean, imagine someone saying this, I want to introduce you to my best friend, Ralph. I chose Ralph because I don't know any human named Ralph, so I know I'm going to offend anybody. Here's my friend, Ralph. He's my best friend, but he hates me. He's mean to me. He never spends time with me. He ignores me when I'm around him, and he talks bad about me behind my back, but he's my best friend. You would say, no, 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 he's not your friend. He's your enemy, right? Because friendship requires some type of performance. You have to be invested, and you have to give, and you have to do something in order to take that first acquaintance to real friendship. And here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that we are like Ralph, that in our relationship with God, and as we look to God, we give nothing. We ignore him, we critique him, we talk about his back, we don't spend time with him. This is our relationship to him, and yet God has called us friend. He has not only called us friend, but he's called us a son and a daughter. And it's so hard for us to put this in our mind and to live this out because the gospel comes to us, and as we see in this sola, Christ alone, that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. Zero. Nothing. No goodness. No really fervent and, and dedicated religious actions. We bring nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's Christ alone for salvation. And it's so hard to understand that. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and a theologian, he said. He says, the offer of the gospel is to be made not to the righteous, those that are right and upstanding and moral, or even the repentant, those that are really sorry for what they've done, but to all. There, is, there are no conditions that need to be met in order for the gospel offer to be made. How hard is it to really believe that? That we bring nothing. We're like, well, I bring a little bit, right? Like, a little bit of good. I mean, a little bit of morality. A little bit of righteousness. At least a desire. I mean, I brought the desire, right, Carter? Scripture says, no, we didn't. you brought nothing. Romans 1 says that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then Romans 3 says this, and this is like a total slap in the face. Paul says in Romans 3 that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does, does good, not even one. It's pretty clear, right? No one does good. No one can bring or offer anything to God in regards to their salvation. You just can't. We are all like the friend that is ignoring and talking bad about and criticizing and not spending time with God. And yet God calls his enemies his friends. See, we didn't only fail at performing for God. We've also sabotaged our relationship with God. And we struggle with that. And the heart of the Reformation, the heart of the Christian faith is Christ alone, underlined, for salvation. Christ alone for forgiveness. Christ alone for access to God. Christ alone for eternal life. Christ alone for acceptance and love from your maker. Christ alone. 
That's what he says in this text tonight. Look at verse 4 through 6 in 1 Timothy 2. He says, he, this is God, wants not only us but everyone saved. You know, everyone to get to know the truth that we've learned. Here's the truth, that there's one God and only one and one priest mediator between God and us, Jesus, who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them free. See, God's desire is for everyone to be saved, not through their religious activity, not through their good works, not because they're 51% good, but because they truly, by God's grace through faith, believe that it is Christ alone who has offered himself in exchange for their sins to set them free. And it's an interesting word that he uses when he speaks about Christ. He says that Christ is the priest mediator. Okay, so before Christ, the only way to have access to God was through sacrifices. So you would offer sacrifices. It would sacrifice all different types of animals. And there's one day of the year. It's the most significant day of the year. It's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And here's what happened. Everybody would come and they'd bring all their sacrifices to the temple and they would make all these sacrifices to God. But then there was a high priest. He's the highest ranking of all of the priests. And this priest, he would gather together and he would have this one sacrifice. He would take the blood of this sacrifice and he would enter into the Holy of Holies after he's done all of these rituals. He's the only person allowed in there. So he would go into the Holy of Holies, which is where God is, the presence of God, and only he is allowed in. I mean, they took this so seriously that they would actually tie a rope around his ankle. Because if he went through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, there's a chance that he could die. There's a chance that he could fall over and no one else can go in there. So how are they going to get the body out? They're going to have to pull him out. So he ties a rope around his ankle and they had made a sacrifice and he takes the blood and he goes into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. And then he sprinkles the blood on what's called the mercy seat. It's on the Ark of the Covenant, this ornate and gold and beautiful box. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, which is to make an atonement for the sins of the people. It is to bring forgiveness to the sins of the people for the past year. And then after that, he would leave the Holy of Holies and he would take a goat, a very young and innocent goat, and he would lay his hands on the goat. And he would claim over the goat sin and wickedness and rebellion and all the things that the people have done towards God. They've ignored him. They've criticized him. They've rejected him. He would place that on the goat's head, and then he would send the goat out into the wilderness. It was a scapegoat. This is where we get the word scapegoat. It would all be placed so that it would be removed from the shoulders and the weight and the guilt and the shame from the people and placed on the goat until they had to do it next year. And then they did it next year. And then they did it next year. And then they did it next year. And then we see Paul and others speak about Christ as the priest mediator. Who is Christ? Well, he's the highest priest. He is the top of all priests. And he has done what was necessary for the sins of the people. He did all of the actions that were necessary. And he didn't sacrifice an animal, a lamb. He was the lamb. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
And so Christ, being the highest priest, sacrifices himself and sheds his blood on the mercy seat. But the mercy seat is not a gold box that's beautifully adorned. It's a cross. He sheds his blood on the cross, taking and paying for the sins of the people. But he goes a step further. He's not only the high priest and he's not only the the sacrifice lamb, but he's also the scapegoat. It says that he takes all of your sin and your regret and your shame and your guilt, and he puts it where? On his shoulders, and he carries it. And he removes it from you. But it's not to be repeated every year. It only happened one time. He's the highest priest who did what was necessary for you, and he shed his blood on the mercy seat to forgive you from your sins, and he removed from you all of the guilt and shame that you feel for the things that you've done that I feel for what I've done. He says in 1 Timothy 2.6, Jesus offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin. There was an exchange that took place to set us free. You see in scripture that it's very clear that salvation is through Christ alone. Every soul speaks to this. And the reason that I want to focus on this, the reason I want to flesh this out, is because when you really believe that, it gives you such great freedom. It changes your life. It changes how you think, it changes how you live, it changes how you relate with people, it especially changes how you interact with God. Because you're under no illusion that you can do anything to cause Him to love you any more than He already does. It, it enables you to realize that you're free. Like you're, you're fully free. It's so hard for us as performance-driven people to really wrap our minds around that, that I'm free, like fully accepted, fully loved, fully forgiven, fully invited into God's family, and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to like earn it a little bit now. I don't have to like keep my morality on a certain level. But what if I don't do, or what if I, isn't it so hard to not feel that guilt and that shame, like we're not doing enough, I'm not earning enough, God doesn't love me, he's cursing me, he's judging me, no, no, no. The gospel says that Christ alone did everything necessary for your salvation and you are fully loved and fully forgiven, you are fully accepted, there is no guilt and no shame and no condemnation and God is no longer going to judge you because he's already judged Christ who took your sin and your shame upon his shoulders and shed his blood on the mercy seat. It's done. You're free. See, people often say this as you hear this message. They say, listen, man, that really feels like Christianity is a crutch. You ever thought that? Christianity is a crutch. You know, it's for people that can't like stomach life. They can't make it through. They, you know, like I personally, I can handle my business. I can handle myself. I can handle my, per, my spiritual questions. I, I can handle myself. I don't need Jesus accepted me and loved me. I, it's for people that are weak, essentially. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is a crutch. He is. But what is a crutch? It is something that enables you to stand up. It enables you to walk when something is broken. And we are broken. And we want to convince ourselves that we're not. We want to convince ourselves that we have everything together. But we're broken. 
Every single one of us is broken and we need healing and we need a crutch to keep us up and enable us to walk through this life. And Christ is that. And if you think that you're not broken, you're lying to yourself. Every single one of us in this room is broken. And Christ is a crutch for us to enable us to walk through and to find healing. But he's not only a crutch, he's also our life. Christ is life. Jesus says this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me, no one comes to the Father. Jesus is the life. What does it mean that Jesus is the life? You know, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it, but the, the focus is in verse 6, and you can look in your worship program for the text. Verse 6 has a, a key word. Did you notice what it was? It's the word exchange. Here's what it says. It says that Jesus offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin, which means this. When Jesus gave his life for yours, and when he took all of your rebellion, all the ignoring that you've done of God, everything you've ever done, all the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that you feel, when he took it on the cross and he paid for it, there was an exchange that took place. Sometimes we fall into thinking that simply what happened was Christ died and forgave me of my sins. And that's why we continue to struggle with the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the feeling like we need to continue to perform for God. But there was an exchange that took place. He paid for your sins as he gave his life for you, but he also gave you something. There was an exchange. And what did he give you? He gave you his righteousness and his obedience. See, there's an exchange. When you trust in Christ alone for salvation, he takes your sin and your guilt and your shame and your rebellion, and he pays for it, and he wipes out, but he gives you his righteousness and his obedience. So sometimes when we speak about Christ alone and we speak about grace and how God has given you full access to God through Christ and faith, and you don't have to perform, you don't have to earn. The natural human tendency is to think, okay, well, if all I have to do, which is even God's grace to me, is to believe that Jesus has done everything for me, then I'm free to do whatever I want. You ever felt like that? You ever thought that? Like, okay, great. I mean, this is amazing. I don't have to do anything now. I can go do whatever I want on Friday night, whatever I want on Saturday night. I can act however I want in my office. I can treat people however I want because I'm free. Christ has done it all. The answer is, yeah, you are. You can do nothing to lose God's love for you in Christ, and you can do nothing to earn God's love for you in Christ. But here's what happens. Because there's an exchange that takes place when you really believe in Christ alone, you have received the righteousness and the obedience of Christ. Which means something totally counterintuitive happens. You don't fall into the trap of believing that you can, you're now free to do whatever you want. You actually begin to realize that you are free to pursue Christ without fear of rejection from God. Because you have Christ's righteousness and his obedience. You can pursue God without fear that God's going to kick you out of the house. 
You can pursue God without fear that God is going to judge you. You can pursue God without fear that you have to clean yourself up before you can come to God. I can't pray because I really I need to work on myself. I can't go to church because you know what I did last night? I, no. You are free to pursue God without fear because there's been an exchange. And this is, why, this is how you know this, right? If, if you have come to Christ and if you believe and trust in Christ alone for salvation, something happens. All of a sudden you realize that you are desiring things that you never desired before. Has that happened to you? All of a sudden things that you were doing before and thinking before you no longer want to do. How'd that happen? It just happens organically. Why? Because there was an exchange. Now when you read the Bible, you can't stop reading it. It's coming alive. You come to church and it's different when the songs are played and when you listen to the sermon and when you pray. Things are changing in your life. And if you think back on your life, you've been a Christian for a couple months or for a year or for 10 years, and you think, wow, I'm a completely different person. How'd that happen? Did you get more moral? No, there was an exchange. You have been given the righteousness and obedience of Christ, and you are free to pursue him without fear that you're going to be rejected and kicked out of God's house. Sinclair Ferguson, he also says this, just listen to me. He says, failure to deal with the presence of sin can often be traced back to spiritual amnesia. Forgetting our new true real identity, as a believer, I'm someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and therefore is free and motivated to fight against the remnants of sin in my heart. There was an exchange. You must know, rest in, and think through and act upon your new identity that you are in Christ. Is this what it means when you recognize and you really believe that you are in Christ? God has invited you into his house. He has given you a room. And he has told you, you can stay forever. I'm not going to kick you out. It doesn't matter if you don't make your bed. You can stay. You're never going to be kicked out. He's ne God is never going to let you down as we sing. This is your home, this is your family because of Christ and what he's done. And that frees you up to pursue Christ because his righteousness and his obedience has become yours. See, when Jesus is your life, Paul's going to encourage you with two things. If you really believe that, if you really trust in that, he's going to tell you, I want to encourage you with two things, very simple things. He's going to say, I want to encourage you to pray and I want to encourage you to share it. First, he says, pray. Look, look what he says. Here's what it means to live out solus Christus, Christ alone. He says in the first couple verses, the first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how, for everyone you know. And then he, at verse 3, he says, this is the way of our Savior God, how he wants us to live. Paul says, pray for everyone you know. And specifically, he's saying, pray for everyone you know that they might come to believe this, that Christ has offered himself in exchange for their sins that they might be set free. Pray for everyone you know. He even says in verse 2 to pray for the government. That's kind of hard. It's the last time you've prayed for the government and its leaders. Everyone you know, he says, pray. But why would you do that? Why would you pray for your coworkers and for your boss and for your friends and for your family members and for your barista and for the government rulers and every single person that you come across, even those that are really difficult? Why would you pray for them? Because you have received the most revolutionary, powerful, beautiful gift in the world. You have received the greatest treasure there is. 
And to withhold that would make no sense. Have you ever received a gift as you're thinking about Christmas? Some of you are, are praying for this. You want to see, receive a gift that's revolutionary, right? Changes everything for you. Have you ever received a revolutionary gift? What happens when you receive a gift that changes everything for you? Uh, full disclosure, I'm going to tell you about a gift that I received. A couple years ago, I was reaching into the stocking, and, and Jess got me a gift, and it was a small little gift. And what you have to know first off is I'm a bath man. Any other bath people here? No shame in my game. My bath game is strong. I love baths. Some of you are like, ew, no, I love it. It's amazing. Okay, so I love taking baths, and I pull out this, this little treasure. And some of you that have a strong bath game, you know what this is. It's from a store called Lush. And it's a bath ball. And if you've ever had a bath ball, it's revolutionary. Changes your bath experience forever. I mean, they have mystery bath balls where you put it in and you don't even know what's going to happen. It's a surprise. They have aromatherapy. I don't know what aromatherapy is, but it sounds good. So I'll get one of those and put it in there. I'm supposed to feel better because it's lavender. You know, it's like amazing. It changes the game. When I experienced the bath ball, I told everyone. I was like, you take baths? Yeah. You got to go to Lush. You got to get a bath ball. Get the mystery bath ball. Get the Christmas, Father Christmas. That's a good one if you never use that. Get Father Christmas. Amazing. Change the game. Right? This happens, right? When you get a gift that's revolutionary and you love it and you're passionate about it, you share it with people. You've been entrusted with this and you share it. It's natural, it's normal. And Paul is saying, if you really believe in this, that Christ alone for salvation, that he has taken all of your sin and your rebellion and your regret and your guilt upon his shoulders, and he has given you his righteousness and his obedience, and you've done nothing to deserve it. You have been fully accepted and loved by God. It's the greatest gift in the world. It is revolutionary. And you should be praying that people come to find that and to trust in that. And he says, not only pray, but also share it with them. But he says in the last couple of verses, he says, eventually this news is going to get out. This and this only has been my appointed work, getting this news to those that have never heard of God and explaining it through really complex ideas and really clearly crafted graphs. What does he say? Explaining it by simple faith and plain truth. He says, my appointed work is this, to pray for everyone I know that they might come to trust in Christ alone for salvation, and I share it with them simply. And here's what you're thinking, Carter. That's the Apostle Paul, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. He's on another level. He is an evangelist. He's been gifted in ways. I'm not good at speaking with people about this, about personal things. Like, I get really uncomfortable. I don't really know what to say. What if they ask me, hey, I don't know the answer. That's not for me. Well, here's the thing. There are people that are gifted in evangelism. Paul was a gifted evangelist. And some of you here may be gifted in evangelism. It is a gift. But every one of you, if you are here and you believe and trust in Christ, you have been given a revolutionary gift that has been entrusted to you to share with people simply and plainly. You don't have to have read evangelism books. You don't have to have been a Christian for a long, long time. You don't have to even be confident. You just have to share the simple gospel, which is this. God loves you. He's forgiven you because what Christ has done on the cross is he paid the penalty for your sins. And he has risen from the dead. 
And if you believe that, you are fully accepted and loved by God. That's the gospel. It is simple and it is clear. You don't have to have all the answers. I was talking with someone recently that was asking questions of faith and they've been kind of on the spiritual journey and looking at different things and reading different stuff. And, and they said to themselves, you know, I don't feel like I can really pursue God right now because there's some things in my life that are not okay. I gotta, I gotta work on, I gotta clean myself up, I, I gotta start doing some better stuff. And once I get there, once I work through that, then I'll start pursuing God. And I said to him, I said, you know that God loves you as you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, and if you believe in Christ, you're fully forgiven and you're free. You don't have to clean yourself up. That's all I said. He looked at me and he said, is that what you preach at your church? I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Because we always think that we have to perform for God. And the gospel is very simple. Christ performed for you. He did it for you. It is simple and it is plain and it is clear. And he has called us that have been entrusted with that to share it simply. The first time I ever shared the gospel in my life, I was sharing the gospel with somebody in New Zealand. So I felt a lot better because I would never meet them again. And literally, when I was talking with them, I thought to myself as I was speaking, this ever happened to you? I was thinking, I'm making zero sense. Like, they're, they're, they're like gonna run away from Christians their entire lives now. Like, this makes no sense. I don't even know if this is right. This is probably heretical. So at the end of it, I said, you know, uh, like I was like nervous, like, do you wanna pray to receive Christ? I'm like, they're going to slap me. They're going to punch me. Something's going to happen. It's going to be bad. Sort of bawling, crying. So I started, oh, God, I don't know what to do. You know, so I, so I, so I started talking, and it simply said, you know, I've never heard that God loves me. I've never, ever heard that, that I don't have to, to work and earn his love. I mean, I made no sense. And they just heard that very simple and clear thing and came to trust in Christ that day. See, we have been commanded to pray and to share very simply with those that are around us because we've received the greatest and most revolutionary gift. We claim a simple faith with extravagant effects. It changes everything about you, the way you think, the way you act, and relationships that you have. So how do you live out soulless Christus? How do you live out the heart of the Reformation? There's three very simple things. You remind yourself that you are free. You don't have to do anything. God loves you. He's fully accepted you. And with that freedom, you begin to pray for others that they might come to see that. And then when you have opportunity, you share the simple truth of the gospel with them. Because it's simple, but it is powerful. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to, I'm going to do something that I don't do often, but I want to pray a very simple prayer. And it's a prayer of, of belief. And I don't know where you're at, and, and maybe you're here and you've been asking a lot of questions and you've been searching and uh, you've been, you know, kind of pushing yourself off and you've been thinking you need to clean yourself up for God. And, and, and if that's you and you've come to see that, that you are loved by God in Christ through faith in him, then I want to encourage you just silently to pray this prayer with me. 
And if you are here and you already trust and believe in Christ, I want you to pray the prayer with me too. But I want you to pray it with a heart of gratitude that you believe it. That God has graciously opened your eyes and your mind to see the truth of the gospel. And I also want to encourage you this. If, if you pray this prayer for the first time, to, to come find me after and to talk with me. Or if you have questions, because this is the greatest treasure and the most important gift that has been given to us. So will you pray with me? God, we're thankful for you. God, we know that we are sinners. God, I am a sinner. And yet you love me. God, I, I trust in you. I believe you. I believe that you have taken away my sin. I believe that you have taken away my guilt. That Jesus, you have done it all. And God, I ask that you would remind me and help me to know that it is in Christ alone that I am saved. I trust in you, God. I believe in you in faith that you are good and that I can rest now freely in your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.